Today we're going to read Colossians chapter 3, verses 15 through 17, and I think it'll be evident to you why I'm reading this and where I'm taking this from, although I had hundreds of passages of Scripture that we could have looked at. I want to talk with you today about why we do what we do in worship. And for some of you, it'll simply be a reminder. But for others of you, maybe you've never been a part of it before, or maybe you are new to us and you, you really wonder, why do they do this this way? And why do they do this at this time? And why do we preach as we do? And I hope it'll be helpful to you. Listen to the words of the Apostle Paul to the church at Colossae, which was in Central Asia Minor. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. Since as members of one body, you were called to peace and be thankful. Let the message of Christ dwell among you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom through psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. And whatever you do, I always think verse 17 is a verse every Christian ought to know and ought to be practicing. And whatever you do, whether in word or in deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Some of you know I was out last week. We went to the Southern Baptist Convention meeting in Los Angeles and went out a few days early with two of my college roommates. Uh, we, we kind of have not seen each other for a long time except at Southern Baptist Convention. They said, let's go to California, let's rent a van, and let's tour part of the state. And so we went to Sequoia and saw the big trees. We went to Yosemite. We went to Carmel-by-the-Sea. We came down the Pacific Coast Highway. We went to the Reagan Library. We had a ball, and uh, the three wives kept looking at us like the three guys had lost their minds because it was like we just left college again and had a wonderful time. On Sunday, we said, where are we going to go to church? Then three guys got together and we said, we're going to go to the closest Baptist church we can find. So 1.9 miles later, we walked in to a relatively small church, probably about a normal-sized church, 75 people there, uh, very different uh, they were American Baptists. Don't worry about the names, but they were American Baptists in recent years become Southern Baptists. Had a pulpit over here, a pulpit over here. I think all of us were afraid maybe we were going to hear two sermons when we really came for one sermon. But they had a pulpit on each side, and they sang two hymns, neither of which any of us, we had heard of them before, but we didn't know them, not the kind of hymns or songs that we sing here or have for 30 years. They had a really good, it was a good message. It was a good experience. You walk into a church and you wonder, why do they do what they do? So we're going to try to answer that today. 
Here is the thing I want you to get. This is the heart of what I want you to get. Who are we? We are a New Testament church that seeks to get our beliefs, our behaviors, and our principles from the Word of God, particularly the words of Jesus and what He brought about in the church. Remember, the church only goes back to the New Testament. It was Jesus who created the church. It was Jesus who said, upon this rock I build my church. When you read through the book of Acts, you read about the early church and about the early churches and of how they practiced, and we seek to be that church. We seek to follow the principles found in the Word of God, found in the words of Jesus. So what do we do? Well, I'm going to give you five things, but really there are 10 or 12 things. Let, let me tell you some things I'm not going to think of, talk about. I'm not going to talk about prayer. I'm not going to talk about people giving their testimonies. I'm not even going to talk about reading Scripture. But I am going to talk about these five things. This is who we are. This is what we do. And hopefully, these are reasons why we do it. So here are the five things that we do. Number one, we sing. And you sang. And we sing, and some of you have come from churches. If, if you'd been First Baptist Church for Garden Grove, California last week, and they walked in, and we sing for 25 minutes or thereabouts, when they only sang two hymns, they probably would want to know, why do you sing so much? And maybe you want to know why you sing so much. And the answer to that is basically this. Think of what is said right here in this passage of Scripture. Verse 16, let the message of Christ dwell among you richly as you teach and admonish one another. By the way, there's something implied here that's very important. Paul says you are one body. You are members of one body. And that verse will tell you why we talk about being members of the body and of the importance of being members of the body. But remember, it's one body, and that in reality, we are members of the body of Christ. But as you teach and admonish one another, as you encourage and help one another, do so, sing, as you do so, psalms and hymns and songs from the Spirit, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. So what are psalms? Well, we, we have a whole book of psalms, 150. They're, they're songs of praise, but they're also laments. They were used by the Jewish people, and they were used in the early church. So what are hymns? Not the hymns that were written in the 17, 18, 1900s, but the hymns that were being used in that day by the church. Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 11 was probably a hymn that was at least repeated and maybe sung by the early church. It talked about Jesus, about his coming into the world, about 
who he is, calling the church to be like Jesus. What are spiritual songs? They are songs, words, and songs inspired by the Spirit of God in a time in which there were no hymnals, no no scripture. Maybe Galatians had been written. Maybe First and Second Thessalonians. But it hadn't been elevated to the point of being seen as Scripture. So they used psalms and hymns and spiritual songs to teach and to admonish one another. And when we sing, it ought to be teaching us and it ought to be encouraging us. And do you know what else it should be? The, the parallel passage in Ephesians chapter 5 says this. Don't get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another with psalms and hymns and songs from the Spirit. Listen to what Paul says to do. Sing and make music from your heart, from your whole being. And so when we sing, we ought to be singing with our whole being. But to whom should we be singing? Paul says, with, from, your, from your heart to the Lord. And in all of our worship, we need to remember that we're doing this for a congregation of one. We're doing this for God. We're singing for him. We're singing from our hearts for God. So sing, we sing, and it's so vitally important. Second thing we do is we give. We give because Genesis chapter 4, Cain and Abel gave before there was any command. They obviously felt a need in their hearts to give to God. You, you read the, the Bible, and one of the things you'll find is from Genesis to Revelation, God tells us to give, that it's important to give, that we need to give, that we need to give out of gratitude to God. What else does the Bible tell us? It tells us that we need to be cheerful givers. We need to give from our heart. We need to give out of gratitude. We need to give for God and his purposes. Now, I want to tell you, a lot of times, churches get way too interested in giving. And more than that, pastors get way too interested in giving, and we worry about it. One thing that I have learned for my 30 years of being pastor at this local church is, Waylon, for goodness sake, quit worrying about giving. Why? Well, think about all the things my 30 years have seen. The Gulf War, 9-11. Uh, we didn't have a television in the building. You look around, how could that be? You got televisions everywhere now. We didn't have a television in the building. Somebody had a radio on 9-11 on that morning. We sat on the floor in the church office and heard all of the awful things that were happening. So we went through the Gulf War. We went through 9-11. We went through Hurricane Katrina when 25% 
of the attenders of First Baptist Church moved out of the community. 25 deacon families moved. What do deacons do? Well, among other things, they pray, they lead, they give, they teach. They're at the heart of the church, and 25 of them moved. That was a scary time. Then we had 2008, the Great Recession. And now we got 2022, whatever this is to be called. I don't know. But you know what the people of First Baptist Church have proven to me? You're going to give no matter what. And you're going to give out of gratitude to God. And that, you know what else? It's proven that God is going to be faithful to his people. That's, that's just the way it is. A few years ago, somewhere after 2008, since about that time, there's been a discussion among church leaders. What's going to happen to the church when and if the United States, talking about the church in America, no longer allows for your giving to be deducted from income taxes? I mean, there have been real worries about that. You know what I think is going to happen? <clears throat> Only that God's people are going to give faithfully as they've always given. Out of gratitude to God, out of love for God. I have determined to quit worrying about giving and just give and let you give, and I encourage you, if that worries you, you do the same. What do we do? Number three, we observe the ordinances. So what are, what's the word ordinance mean? It means a command. It means a law. It means something that is to be done and followed. Uh, the law of the Old Testament is often called commands and ordinances. There are two of those that Jesus told us to practice. Those are baptism and the Lord's Supper. There are two commands. There are other things in Scripture that, that kind of lend toward that, but they are not commands that are in Scripture. When I was growing up, I grew up in the rural South. There were a lot of little churches that had all kinds of different practices. I never went to any of those churches, but I listened to my mom and my dad talking about those churches and what their practices were. And, and we had church families over on sa Sunday nights, and every now and then the kids, my, my best friend and I, we'd get to sit around the table and listen to the adults talk, and, and they would talk about other churches. One of those churches was, were people who, who practiced foot washing. And that was always fascinating to me. I'd never seen it happen. I had no idea what a foot washing would look like. I'm sure something strange in my mind popped up. But those churches thought that was a command. But if you look at John chapter 13 and other passages in the Gospels, you'll find that foot washing was very prominent but never commanded. Jesus washed the disciples' feet. Remember, Simon Peter almost had a fit about it. No, Lord, you are not going to wash my feet. Jesus said, if I don't wash your feet, 
then I will not wash any of you. And then then, uh, Peter said, no, 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 I didn't mean that, Lord. No, you, you do whatever you need to do. Foot washing was a part of culture in that day. But only slaves washed the feet of others. And Jesus did that as an example for you and me. We are servants. We're not masters. We're servants. And if Jesus could be a servant, I can be a servant. And you can be servants. So it's an example, but it's not a command. So what is commanded? Baptism. Go into all the world, make disciples, baptize them. The word baptize means to dip. One of the things I did last week is I read through the Acts of the Apostles. I encourage you to do that. You can take four or five days and go through it, but you may be like me and you just read the whole book at one time because you get excited with what happened there. You see the gospel being preached. You see the spirit being given to the church. You're seeing people being saved. You see you see all kinds of people. You see Gentiles saved. You see Romans saved. You see Samaritans saved. You see the church growing and progressing and lives being changed. And it is exciting. And you see Paul experiencing persecution and others. And you see those people who died because of their faith and you are amazed. But here's one thing that you see. Every time somebody was saved, they were baptized. They went into the water. Now, every now and then, different churches will dispute. Well, they went into the water, but does that mean they dipped them under the water? Well, I think it's implied, but I'll I'll let them ask that question. But what you see is that everybody saved was bat- was, and was baptized, and it was done rather quickly after their baptism. I generally tell people, I understand this is a really big step, uh, and that it really means a lot. And anything that means a lot ought to be prayed over and thought about it, and you ought to count the cost and, 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 and all of those kind of things. But I say you don't need to think about it very long. But because obviously, you read through Acts, you'll find that everybody saved was baptized and say, and baptized soon. Not in order to be saved, but because they were saved as an example. And when a person is baptized, they are, they are giving a picture. And the picture is of the gospel. What did Jesus do for us? He died for us. He was buried and he was raised from the dead. And when we are baptized, not exactly the same picture, we, we die to self, we are buried, and we are raised from the dead. We are picturing what Christ did. Jesus told us to do that. The second thing that he told us to do was to practice the Lord's Supper. Now, at this point, you know the Lord's Supper. What is it doing? It's doing exactly what baptism does, but in a different way. Because the Lord's Supper reminds us that Jesus died for us, that he gave his body for us. 
that he, that he shed his blood for us on the cross. Two elements for the Lord's Supper, the bread and the, the fruit of the vine, the bread and the cup. And they symbolize, they remind us of what Jesus did for us. Paul said, he quoted the words of Jesus, as, as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So it is very obvious that this needs to be not a one-time practice, your baptism, but a continual practice. Now, no one knows what continual means other than it shouldn't end because the Bible doesn't tell us how often we ought to do it. A lot of you come from churches that practice the Lord's Supper every worship service. We obviously don't do that. Why is that the case? Well, first of all, the Bible doesn't tell us to do that every week. doesn't tell us how often, but it is to be a constant. It is to be a continual and we have made the decision that we would like to take the roteness out of this and the ritual out of this. And, the, and I say this reverently because I'm, you know I don't talk about other churches. I just know that in my life things can get ho-hum if I let them. And so we want to make the Lord's Supper as special as we can. And I'll tell you, hold this piece of bread, this little wafer in your hand, and think of the body of Christ given for you. And look at the, 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 the juice in the cup and think about Christ dying for you. Nobody ever asked me this, but I think I ought to explain it anyway. Uh, I bet you've thought about it, but nobody ever asked me, why don't we have real wine? And there's a very practical reason because real people have real problems with real alcoholic beverages. And we don't want to be a problem. And interestingly, uh, the Bible doesn't really talk about wine as much it as it does the cup and the fruit of the vine. Obviously, it was wine of some kind. Nobody knows exactly what it means. In the Old Testament, the Bible says to be careful or to abstain from wine and strong drink and will always put them together as if they're two different things, which has led some people to believe that the wine of that day was, was cut. Not everybody's wine of that day was cut, but was cut with about two-thirds water. Remember Paul told to Timothy in a day of unclean water, take a little wine with your water and described it in that way. But that's why we don't do it in that way. Uh, just for full disclosure, one time when I was a young uh, seminary professor, I went to another church in New Orleans and I preached, and I led them, and I took the Lord's Supper with them, and the, the, the little bit of wine that I had went down really hot. That's all I can say. And uh, I've thought about that since then. What an amazing thing for a teetotaler. So we don't, 
we do that for that reason, but we follow the Lord's Supper and we follow baptism. What do we do? We, we fellowship. We fellowship. I saw that last week in Garden Grove. You're thinking, I've heard of Garden Grove. Well, yeah, it's right outside of Los Angeles, right outside of Anaheim. It's where the Crystal Cathedral is. That's not where we were. But we went to Garden Grove, and after the service, here's what we were, here's what we were shocked about. Now, I'm from the deepest of the deep south. I am from the most rural of the rural south. And so when we went to California, we found the nicest, kindest, most hospitable people you could ever find. And after church, they had coffee and they had cookies. And I was first in line for the coffee, but I missed the cookies. And they stood and talked and, and they just loved being with each other. And here were several outsiders and they just brought us in. We fellowship. I can't, you know that we put a huge emphasis on fellowship. That's why we ask you, please, please write your name down. Let us get that. Let us give you a call and say, we're so glad you came. We, we want to know who you are. We want, we want somebody to know your name. Nobody here can know everybody's name, but we want somebody to know your name. And we want everybody to belong and to be a part. And why do we do that? Because look at the quote that's on your sermon sheet and on the, on the screen. Here's what I read this week. Community, he means fellowship, meaning being together having people who know your name, having people who care about you and who love you. We try to get you into a connect group for community, for fellowship, for somebody to know your name because community doubles the joy and it does. Every now and then, I just look for somebody to call and say, Guess what happened? I, I would love to show my dad my grandchildren that he never met because he would rejoice with me. So I show them to other people and they rejoice with me. That's what community does. It doubles the joy and it halves the sorrow. What do we do when people are hurting? We gather around them. We pray. We, we say we're thinking about you. I used to kind of, I, I played up the praying part. I played down the thinking about you part. The older I get, the more wonderful it is that somebody thinks about you and that they pray for you. Community doubles the joy and it halves the sorrow. So we do fellowship and we encourage fellowship and we want to know each other. What do we do? We, we preach. We preach Christ. We preach and speak the word of God. We tell the truth. I always try to think about new people. Well, what is it like to come in here? I want to make it welcoming. I want to make it warm. I want to make it friendly. I want to make it joyful. Uh, because we want you to come. Because we want you 
to know the Christ we know because we want you to have the peace of God that passes all understanding because we want you to have salvation from your sin because we want you to have a home in heaven because we'd like for you, and we're not saying this proudly or arrogantly, just based on the word of God, we'd like for you to go to heaven. We're going to heaven because of Christ. We'd like for you to go with us. And we'd like for you to have love and joy and peace that comes by His indwelling Spirit. But I know that sometimes when you talk about very serious things, it can get heavy. But what good does it do you to come to church and we don't tell the truth? What value is that? So we want to tell the truth about how God made people, male and female. We, we want to tell the truth about sin entering into the world and the curse of our sin that keeps us from God. And we want to tell the truth about, about marriage, about the way God created us. In a world that seems not to be able to tell the truth, we, we feel that we must tell the truth. And when we preach, we encourage. And I hope that the things that are heavy are balanced or even counterweighted by our encouragement that there is a God in heaven who knows your name who knows who you are, who knows everything you're going through, and who has promised to never leave you nor forsake you, who has promised to be with you always, who has promised to, to be right there in you and to dwell within you by his Spirit. We want to encourage you. I, since it's Father's Day, I read the greatest Father's Day story this week. It was in the local press, which, of course, I get on my phone, even in, my, in California. It was about a family in Baker, Louisiana. Most of you know where Baker is, right outside of Baton Rouge. A family in Baker, two 30-year-olds who have seven children, the oldest of which is five years old. And I know right now there are things you're computing in your mind and trying to figure out how is that possible and then asking, is that possible? Well, not only do they have seven children under the age of five, they have three sets of twins under the age of two. So now you're computing again. How is that possible? Well, there are 19-month-old girls, there are 11-month-old, it's getting close there, boys, and there's a one, it's, I'm sorry, it's 19, 10, and 1. And there's a set of twins who are one month old. So the part that made this a Father's Day message is this. So the reporter is asking, what's it like to be the father of seven children under five and three sets of twins under two? Now, I know men, 
I know me, I know you, I know men, and you're saying, how in the world can you afford seven children under five years of age? And I know women, I, I act like I do, I know one a little bit, <laughs> and I know you women are asking, what's keeping her sane? <laughs> so what's it like to be the father of seven children, three sets of twins. You know what he said? It's fun. <laughs> she said, it's fun. And I want to tell you, I was encouraged by that. I was encouraged about a intact family. I was encouraged about a father and mother who care for their children and love their children. I was encouraged by a man having such a great attitude of saying, it's fun. Now, he works 50 or 60 hours a week. He's a paint foreman for a contractor. He works and he works hard, but he says, it's fun. And I want our church to be a place where you are encouraged for your family, for your life, for your devotion for God, where you're encouraged to be strong and courageous, to be obedient to God, to live for Him, to take people around you in your sphere of influence and, and tell them, look, you can make this. You can do it. God is going to be with you and we're going to be around you and we're going to help you. We encourage. What else do we do when we preach? We preach Christ and Him crucified. We preach Christ and we ask you to respond in faith, to follow him and to obey him and to live for him. And we do this, you know, in, by means of an invitation. I call it a warm-hearted invitation in which we ask you to do something. The thing that we want to ask you to do today is to pray and ask God, God, what do you want me to do? How do you want me to live? How do you want me to worship and serve you and follow you? We invite you to walk to the front. Now, you don't have to do that. We've said that. That's not, do you know what? That's not scriptural. Walking to the front, they didn't even have a church building. We started doing that about two or 300 years ago. So you don't have to do this. We let you do this in other ways. But if people say, well, should I go to the, to the counseling room and join the church, profess my faith, or should I walk to the front? I say, either way is fine. But if you would, if you would walk to the front, that would encourage other people to do the same. So we preach Christ. We want you to know him. We want you to be saved. We want you to have the hope. Hope has a name, and his name is Jesus. And we want you to know him, and we want you to follow him. And I don't want to manipulate you. I don't want to intimidate you. I don't even want to make you feel bad. But here's what I want you to do. I want you to hear the Spirit of God speaking to your heart tapping you on the shoulder. This is what I want you to do. This is the way I want you to live. And I want you to give your heart to me and we want you to follow him.